It is impossible to do what I'm supposed to do. But we will try to do it. Open the precious, glorious Word of God to the sixth chapter of Isaiah and let us see there the glorious vision that he had of the King of the whole earth, the Lord Jehovah, and the terrible doctrine of reprobation and the glorious doctrine of election that that God charged him to go preach with his purged lips. Every man that opens his mouth in the house of God to the people of God to present the word of God should be terrified like Isaiah was. But the Lord enabled him and the Lord forgave him and the Lord told him to go anyway and preach. The theme of this chapter is God revealed himself to Isaiah, convicted him, forgave him, for the conviction he gave him, and charged him to condemn Judah. I gave you a brief outline of it in the preparatory email that I sent you yesterday. This glorious chapter has two parts. Verses 1 through 8 are a part. Verses 1 through 8 is the fabulous, fabulous vision that Isaiah had of God. Verses 9 through 13... Those five verses are a key prophecy of God's judgment upon the Jews regarding the gospel and their final destruction. Most people know Isaiah's vision in the first eight verses quite well. Only a very few know the prophecy of the last five verses. My dear brothers and sisters, we want more than the sound and feelings from Isaiah's vision, we want sense of Scripture and faith to result more perfectly from this passage of Scripture. The man of God is not an entertainer. He must preach the Word. So prepare for doctrine, not stories. The prophecy in the last five verses of Isaiah 6 is quoted or referred to six times. In the New Testament. The vision is only mentioned in one verse, one time, and I sent that to you yesterday in John chapter 12 and verse 41. But this prophecy is very important, and it's used by Jesus and his apostles very carefully and takes us far beyond Babylon and a judgment far worse than 70 years' captivity. We cannot stop with Assyria that Hezekiah faced or Babylon, for the New Testament applies this passage to the Jews of our Lord's time and the Apostles' time and the destruction by the Roman legions. Let me read to you the first four verses of Isaiah seeing and hearing God's glory. In the year that King Isaiah died... I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. 
With twain, he covered his face. And with twain, he covered his feet. And with twain, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Amen. amen and amen. Isaiah saw and heard God's glory. Isaiah was a prophet under four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This is the last year of Uzziah's reign. We are not told any significance by the dating, except that this date is about 20 years in front of the first verse of the next chapter. I did not want to preach Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 7 at the same time. They're separated by 20 years, and they are drastically different. And so God, and I bless him, has led me in a very different direction than that. I can tell you this about Isaiah, that Isaiah provoked the Lord. He was a good king. He reigned for 52 years. The Lord lifted him up and blessed him to be great and mighty and rich and powerful and to build a great standing army. All of these things we are told, but his heart was lifted up in pride. None of you are even close to Isaiah. And you never shall be. But never get lifted up in pride. So the Lord smote him with leprosy because he thought he could go into the temple of God and offer incense like the priest did because he had been invincible so far in his life. But leprosy is not being invincible. And so we are told in the year that King Isaiah died and God took his final vengeance on his life, that Isaiah saw this vision, and this vision is one of God in judgment and God judging. The also here is a separate and unique vision Isaiah had of Almighty God. In a passage like this, which in 1976 altered your pastor's life, I cared about every single syllable and every single word of this passage. When it says, I saw also, it's because he's already given us some visions that he's received from the Lord. The first verse of the first chapter said, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. And here we have a vision. And so it's another vision. It's a separate vision. It's a unique vision of the glory of God. I saw also the Lord, and it's in lowercase letters. O-R-D. This is Adonai. The other he another Hebrew name for God, not Jehovah. Adonai and Lord for Adonai with lowercase is used in your Old Testament 434 times. It's not unusual at all. It means the supreme being or sovereign ruler of the divine being that rules the heavens and the earth. It is the same God as Jehovah because when Isaiah responds to this vision in verse 5, he says, Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and it's in uppercase, capital letters, Lord, 
meaning Jehovah. So they are used interchangeably at times, though our King James translators used the capitalized version, Lord, for Jehovah, many more times that God gave them. It's the same God. There's only one God. Amen. The Lord our God is one Lord. Amen. The Lord sat upon a throne, and it was not an ordinary throne. It was high and lifted up throne. He was put in his proper place because he's the king of all. God is king. And Isaiah is going to declare it shortly in verse 5 when he states it about him. And a throne is fitting for a king. And a high and exalted throne is more fitting, far above all others. I read in the Bible that this God that we worship and this God that we want to see today from this passage and from other places has a throne beside him where the Lord Jesus Christ sits. And where the Lord Jesus Christ sits is an inferior throne to where Jehovah sits, all of it being symbolic for us. Jesus is subordinate to Almighty God in his human mediatorial nature in heaven because 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 28 tells us that. But though the Lord Jesus Christ is on a throne inferior to the Father's divine throne, if you can grasp that, it is so simple and you shouldn't have a problem with it. Jesus is both Jehovah God on Jehovah's throne and in his human nature, he is sitting on another throne at the right hand of Almighty God. But even on that inferior throne, his throne is far above all other thrones. Right. Might, dominion, and names in this world and in the world to come. Right. Now that puts God up high when his son is far above all other thrones and God is above his throne. He is truly the king, the Lord of hosts. I want you to have a vision of God today. I want you to learn Bible doctrine today. It is a choice. God is not going to give you a vision like he gave Isaiah. But God put Isaiah's vision in writing for you to pretend that you're there and for you to resurrect it today. And a son knows what this means to me. And I thank God it means the same to him. It messed me up 43 years ago. It messed me up last night. I wanted to convene all of you together to sing crown him with many crowns last night. I was irritated that we have to be separate in our own little private homes or dungeons and we couldn't be together to sing praise to him. This passage, God is able to take his word and bring it to life to you. When we pray, Lord, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Most Christians read the Bible, and they don't see anything except little squiggly marks on the page that are the English alphabet. And they translate them through high-speed decoding to read a sentence and go on to the next sentence, and then the next sentence, and they see nothing that I may behold wondrous things 
out of thy law. But the Lord is able, when we ask him, and it's one of the things we want to do, and I'll show you in the second service, we want to ask him to show us his glory. And one of the ways he does it is through his word. These words should be precious to you. You should want to read them over and over again. You should want to read them slowly. You should want to savor them and dwell on them. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Indicating the stately robes or the long skirt train trailing behind him on the ground, commonly worn by sovereigns and high officials on state occasions. The temple here was likely Solomon's in Jerusalem that Isaiah would have known. The temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built, like the tabernacle that Moses built, had an altar. And the fire never went out on that altar. Leviticus chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, the fire never went out. There were always live coals. The fire never went out. And so as we read about what's happening here in the temple that was symbolic of God's presence in Jerusalem, for Isaiah's purpose, God was in the temple for a visual demonstration to Isaiah of the greatness and glory of God. What man wouldn't want to go preach after reading the first four verses? If you were like Isaiah, when you heard, whom shall we send and who will go for us? Here am I. You don't need to look any further. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Is what Saul of Tarsus said, and it's the same thing that Isaiah said. And let me tell you something. It's the same thing everyone says who has a proper vision of God. No one ever has a vision of God that is saved and says, I don't want to do what you want me to do. You say, what about Jonah? Well, he didn't get his vision until he was in the whale's belly. But he got the vision. You want to go read chapter 2 of Jonah? Salvation is of the Lord. They that believe in lying vanities hate their own lives. Jonah did get a vision of the Lord. And his train filled the temple. Look at, just think of the majestic, royal judge that took his throne. When we stand in court, all rise, the honorable so-and-so, and they come in from a side door in their robe, and they ascend to a high and lifted up place, and they sit down, it is moving. It's wonderful. And so here we have the king of glory, the Lord of the whole earth, sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And there were seraphims there, and this is the only place in the Bible where we have two occurrences of the word seraphims. The speculation about the origin of the word, I consider nonsense. Flying, fiery serpents. Because they say the same Hebrew word was used to translate the, the serpents that Moses protected the Israelites from with his brass serpent. I don't care what they say about their Hebrew. 
I know what we have in English. And I'm able to compare what we have here with Ezekiel chapter 1, with Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 4, and other places in the Bible, and read about these creatures that God created that are around Him in glory. They're only called seraphims here. They're called cherubim in 76 places throughout the Bible, cherubims. They're called living creatures. In Ezekiel, they're called the four beasts in Revelation. And they're throughout the book of Revelation. They had six wings in Revelation and the same faces as the ones in Ezekiel chapter 1. These are not different. They just have a different angle of looking at them. It's no different than reading the Matthew account of the Gadarene and the Mark account of the Gadarene. In Matthew, there's two. In Mark, there's one. And so we just submit ourselves to the fact that the view and what God chose to give us was partial in each place, so we want to combine them for the overall picture of the glory of God. And one cried unto another. I want to point out something to you that you might think is insignificant. In verse 3, they did not cry to the Lord. They cried to one another. And I want you to remember that singing in a New Testament church is congregational just like this. When we go to Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, it tells us that we are to speak and teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We sing to each other because that is what it's for, and that's what this praise was for. They were rejoicing to each other about their greatness of God. They were making their boast in God about His greatness, and God was the recipient and beneficiary of their praise, but they were doing it to each other, and that is what we do when we sing. This morning, I got to hear the collected sound of your voices singing, Crown Him, with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. And it excited me, moved me, and it moved them, and it moved the, the doors as well. In that second verse, when it described those seraphims, it said that they had six wings each, and two of the wings they used to cover their faces, and we assume without further instruction, that was in reverence, to the holy presence of God before them. With two wings they covered their feet, that is in modesty, covering their uncomely parts. And with two of the wings they did fly, or were hovering there above the throne of God and around the throne of God, as we read in the other places. And when they cried to each other, the concussion of the sound was so great that the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. The posts of the door are the door frame, and the lintel is over the top of the door. It is the strongest part of any wall because of all the grief it's going to take back there. The posts of the door are the so strongest part of a wall, and they shook. If the post shook, the lintel shook. If the lintel and the post shook, the wall shook. It was shaking at the concussion of their voice of praise. And this place ought to shake 
in the sense of moving us when we sing the praises of God. We want to lift up our voices and do it loudly. If you read some of the other chapters last night, did you read in Ezekiel chapter 1 that the sound of their wings was as great waters and as the voice of Almighty God? Their wings. And when they stand down, they lower their wings. I mean, it's fabulous reading. See, you haven't met them yet. Visually. We, we, we've met them by faith. But reading some of these chapters, Sherry and I last night just kept looking at each other. Can you believe this? Now we know those chapters. It doesn't matter. It was like it was all new again. And it was wonderful. There's no being like him. There's nothing better to share. What are we going to share? Pasta? A glass of wine? A bowling alley? What are we going to share that is as exciting as sharing a vision of God? It's wonderful, and I hope that you will do it. And the posts of the door moved the voice of him that cried. These are just the angels created for the worship of God, and the house was filled with smoke. God sometimes showed his presence by filling the tabernacle or the temple with smoke. When Moses sought to dedicate the tabernacle on some occasions, when God wanted to reveal himself to Moses, the presence of the Lord would come down upon the tabernacle and smoke would fill the tabernacle so that they couldn't minister. When Solomon dedicated the temple and they carried the Ark of the Covenant in and set it down, that little gold box in the Holy of Holies, and then started to back out, the glory of God filled the temple so that the priest could not minister. And Solomon knew he had achieved one of the greatest achievements in the history of the world. The Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness, but I've made a house for him, and he just came into it. You know, it is some anniversary of some ridiculous thing of stepping off a spacecraft in a Nevada desert and calling it the moon. I think it's the 40-year anniversary from 19... Well, it, is it 40? That'd be 50. 50-year anniversary of stepping off a, a pretend spacecraft into the Nevada desert and pretending they were on the moon. You can go ahead and believe they were on the moon. I will after the sermon's over. But the point I'm making is I don't care because it's not a very big accomplishment. Right. It's only 240,000 miles away. Listen, some of you put that in your vehicles in five years. My point being, this is a great event. Amen. And what I just told you about Solomon was a great event. And Solomon knew it as soon as it happened. If you want to read a great prayer, it's 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8, he gets down on his knees and he lifts his hands up to heaven. And he knew that God had said, I dwell in the thick darkness and no man can see me, but look what's happening to this temple that I built for him. And that's because of his father David loved the worship of God. And I hope that you love the worship of God. And when you hear these verses read to you and when you see these verses and when you read these verses and when you think about the sight and the sound, this is show and tell of God's great glory. It is very dramatic.
It is full of drama. And then the effect is in verses 5 through 7. His sins of speech were forgiven. Verses 5 through 7, Then said I, Now all, the only speaker so far has been one of those seraphims. In verse 3, But now Isaiah speaks in verse 5, Then said I, Woe is me! Woe is me! Exclamation point. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. No one could see the Lord and live. God reminded Moses of that axiom of his religion. You couldn't see him and live. In Exodus chapter 33, when he wanted to see God's glory. And so here, Isaiah feels entirely undone. And you ought to read the Jewish scribes. They said, this is why Manasseh killed him, because he saw God. Wait a minute. I thought God would kill him if he saw God and he wasn't supposed to see God. And uh, Manasseh wouldn't have to do that. I don't believe anything that those men wrote. And there's a, there's a good reason, I hope that you'll remember it, from Isaiah 6. They are the least intelligent and least knowledgeable of men concerning the Bible of all races on earth. Right. Because God has blinded them. They don't know what they are talking about. The Messianic Jews that write me are the most ignorant people. And they want to appeal to rabbis for wisdom and light. Verse 6 tells us that there's a response to repentance. There's a response to conviction. There's a response to confession. Isaiah confessed in verse 5, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't rule my tongue like I should. I say things that, that are not fitting for me to even be here in the presence of this holy God. And I live in a people that are light, frivolous, foolish, jesting, joking, blaspheming, cursing, swearing. And here I am as part of those people, and I've done it myself in the presence of this holy God, when the only audible things that are being said are about His holiness and His glory, here I am, I'm, I'm undone. That's a confession. It's called the R factor. It's called repentance. It's called conviction leads to confession, leads to repentance. And what, what happens? Then flew one of the seraphims unto me in verse 6, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. That is the altar of sacrifice of the former form of worship. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Praise the Lord for forgiveness of sins by an altar and a sacrifice on that altar. Now the sacrifices on the altar of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple were animal sacrifices. They did work for ceremonial cleanness. They did not satisfy the conscience, and they did not make a person legally righteous before God, but ceremonially, ceremonially, they would keep you alive for another day. But there's an altar that we have that these people have no right to. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10 tells us that there is another altar. It is in heaven, symbolic of Jesus Christ offering himself as a sacrifice for us and God accepting that sacrifice and forgiving our sins. 
So when we look at the symbolic symbolism here, we realize this is for Old Testament times. We've got Paul giving us a pair of spectacles to put on and read this, that there is another altar in heaven where Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God and washes away our sins practically, legally, in every way we need. But I want you to know that verse 6 doesn't happen practically. Verse 7 doesn't happen practically unless verse 5 happens practically. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, if we confess our sins, He is faithful. Whoso hideth his sins shall not prosper. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And we've got to remember that from this lesson here and Isaiah seeing the glory of God. He was overwhelmed by the holiness of God in verse 5. Woe is me. It was the holiness of God that was declared in verse 3. It wasn't the love of God. Those seraphims did not shout to each other, love, love, more love. They shouted, holy, holy, holy. God may love. He does. And God is love. But God cannot love an unholy object. He is first holy. Everyone wants to go to 1 John and work their way over to chapter 4 where they can find the expression and the short clause, God is love. I wish they would start in chapter 1 and read the Bible the way it's intended so that they would read the short clause, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. The truth is God is light, and He only loves objects that He's made holy. No one in the presence of the God of the Bible jumped around and played their little drum for him. Ba-rump-a-bump-bump. Ba-rump-a-bump-bump. No one. They fell on their faces. They repented. They, They thought that it was over with them. Go anywhere you wish. No one knew Jesus Christ better than the Apostle John and he fell at his feet as dead in Revelation chapter 1. Job was the most righteous man on earth. I repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself in the, in the presence of God. Remember this about our God. You say, well, how will I ever stand before him? By the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. That's, what, that's what makes the New Testament so wonderful, is to know that we have a mediator between God and men. Job wanted a mediator. Job wanted a daysman that could put one hand on God and one hand on him and reconcile the two parties. But we have found him. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Now we've had the seraphims, one seraphim speak. Then we had Isaiah speak. And now we have the Lord. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord. And it's back to Adonai, which is the same. It's just a different way of another name, another Hebrew word for describing 
the God of the Hebrews, Jehovah, supreme ruler and divine being, saying, Whom shall I send? Singular, first person, pronoun, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Plural, first person, pronoun, beautiful. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? So this is the triune God having been praised with a thrice mention of holiness, now described plurally and singularly in this verse. Who will take the message of condemnation to the nation of Judah? We are sitting in judgment on this nation. We are sitting in judgment on this people. The next verse uses that terminology instead of my people. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. That same kind of rejection of these people. Who will go and deliver this message? Then said I, here am I, send me. That's the response. That's the response every one of you should have. Here am I, send me. Lord, what would you have me to do in 2019 for you? What do you want me to do as a husband, as a father, as an employee, as a citizen of this nation, as a member of this church? Here am I. Tell me, send me, show me, I'll do it. I'll do anything for you. You know, this passage has been twisted, tortured so many times, trying to get people to come forward and offer themselves to be missionaries on some foreign field. When if they would read the New Testament, all the epistles, all the epistles of the New Testament, there isn't one sentence, there isn't one verse about a pastor or an apostle ever asking anyone in any of those churches to ever be such a thing. It just isn't there. God raises up men. God tells other men that they are, have a gift. God tells us that we should covet the best gifts. God tells us if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. But nowhere is anyone told to go forward and volunteer to be a missionary to some foreign field. It isn't taught in the Bible. And they use this Old Testament passage for Isaiah. This is Isaiah's call. And this is Isaiah's call to preach something that is entirely different than the gospel of those that answer the call in these church services that I attended the first 20 years of my life. And the university down the street in this city. Here am I, send me. This message of condemnation of Judah and this promise of their blindness to the gospel, Isaiah said, I'll do it. God wanted some preacher that would bring a very negative message. And the very negative message is, make these people fat. Blind them. Stop up their ears. Keep them from hearing. Keep them from converting. Because I don't want to heal this nation. Because my intention is to destroy it. And that brings us to the second half of this chapter of Isaiah 6. Isaiah answered God's call to preach this particular message in the 8th verse, and now God gave him the message that he was to preach in verses 9 through 13. Verses 9 and 10. And he said, Who said? 
The Lord said, God Jehovah, the King, the Lord of hosts, the Holy God, the thrice Holy Trinity said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Isaiah, I want you to go irritate them, provoke them, preach to them, push the truth on them, tell them that though they hear your voice, they don't understand it, they don't appreciate it, and provoke them to even greater blindness and hardness of heart. It is twofold. It is very clearly twofold. One, they have rejected me so far. Second, promise them further rejection that I'm going to blind them and blind them by the way you present the truth. This is being a savour of death unto death to the majority of the nation. If we go by the percentage in context, it's 90% of the nation is to be blinded. Wisely consider with me that the doctrine of this prophecy is greater than the drama of the vision. The drama of God's glory, the seraphims, Isaiah's purging of his iniquity and his call to the ministry are precious. You will never get a disagreement from me about that. But the judgment of gospel blindness and the sovereignty of gracious election are better. It is true. The drama should motivate you. Then the doctrine should direct you. The whole combination should result in great praise and thanksgiving and service to God. The effect of the first eight verses should motivate us and then the next five verses should direct us what to believe and how we are bound to give thanks always to God for saving us and for showing us the truth. The Apostle Paul would say about the Thessalonians, but we, he and his ministerial colleagues, are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth whereunto he called you by our gospel. Tremendous. That's the effect that the whole thing should have on us. We should love the first eight verses, and we should respond with confession and repentance in the face of this holy God. We should hear and believe his forgiveness of us, and then we should hear him asking us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, this is God beseeching us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, this is Isaiah 5, 8 for us, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It, it should have that effect. But now we want to learn more that God has given us about these Jewish people. Isaiah was a prophet under four kings of Judah, and he has a ministry to Judah. And his ministry is one of blindness. Remember with me, if you want to understand Bible prophecy, forget the sound of words and learn the sense. There are 21 rules on 140 slides on our website that I did not do justice to at all on Wednesday night. This prophecy right here in 9 and 10 
is repeated six times in the New Testament. Therefore, we accept the doctrine and prophecy here to be of great New Testament importance. When this is six times the New Testament, and the vision is only once and then briefly mentioned, the doctrine is more important. Therefore, because it's mentioned six times, we see Jesus Christ and the apostolic gospel to be the primary object of the prophecy. We don't care what Isaiah thought. We care what God intended. Therefore, we do not stop with captivity in Babylon, but we look all the way to Rome in 70 AD, because that's how Jesus and his apostles used this statement by God in verses 9 and 10. Therefore, we see the blinding permanent, for there is no general recovery promised here or anywhere. This is huge. These two verses are huge. Isaiah's ministry was to condemn the overall nation for their rejection of God's worship, as we read in chapters 1 through 5 that we've covered so far. God told Isaiah, go, tell this people, detail their depravity, harden their hearts. God did not call them my people here. He called them this people by rejection. His mission was twofold, condemn their past rebellion. We're going to see it throughout the book of Isaiah condemn their past rebellion and provoke them to further rebellion. Is this hard for you to believe? It is the savour of death unto death. God loves to judge in kind. It's part of his character. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. He brings a man's sins back on his own pate, and he causes him to fall into the pit which he dug for others. These people rejected the truth that had been preached to them, and so God rejected them from further truth. He would blind them. Whether Stephen or Paul in the New Testament, they preach truth, but they preach it defensively so. And if you say to me, what about 2 Timothy chapter 2, where the servant of the Lord must not strive, that is someone that deserves that kind of care. That isn't, that isn't Stephen on the, in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen said, ye uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now those were fighting words. Jews didn't appreciate being told that they were uncircumcised. And that's why they wanted to kill him. And Paul on Mars Hill didn't say, you boys are so smart. I'm so honored. Thank you for the invitation to speak on Mars Hill. I appreciate being here with you learned doctors of Greek philosophy. He said, God at times past has winked at your ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And he brings up the resurrection, knowing that they wouldn't believe unless they were God's elect. And God's elect got up and walked out with him because of the doctrine of re the resurrection. Modern gurus modify the message to multiply the multitude. Can you follow the M's? Modern gurus modify the message to multiply the multitude opposite of Isaiah. Why did the Jews hate Jesus? He preached truth that offended them. Go read John chapter 8. He preached truth that offended them. He said they weren't Abraham's children. That's as, sensitive, that's as sensitive as they could get. It was about Abraham being their father. Why did the Jews leave Jesus? He preached truth too high for them. Go read John chapter 6. I am the bread that came down from heaven, except a man eat my flesh and drink my blood. He has no life in him. The, the disciples said, Lord, 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 don't you know that's a hard saying and you're really messing with their minds? Well, didn't I already tell you? that except the Father draw them, they're not going to believe on me anyway, so let me just keep, let me continue. In fact, let me add to it. 
And if you go read John 6, he added to it. This is the Jesus of the Bible fulfilling this. Because the nation didn't deserve truth. Do you think that any human being deserves truth after what we did in the Garden of Eden? And that we do every day when we listen to men? Isaiah's, Isaiah's message was indictment for rejecting his word and judgment of blindness on them. Turn over just to Isaiah chapter 8 and let's see if I can pick a verse or two from most of the chapter. Isaiah chapter 8, let me pick verse 14. And he shall be for a sanctuary. The Lord of hosts is in verse 13. He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken and so forth. That's next Sunday, the Lord willing. Isaiah chapter 8. Look at Isaiah chapter 28. This is God's judgment on people for not hearing the preachers that had been sent to them over and over and over again. Isaiah chapter 28. What verse do I pick here? Verse 13. But the word of the Lord was unto them as boring as a kindergarten primer. Precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little and there a little that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Isaiah 29, verse 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. It's all outward external church attendance rather than change lives. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. And on and on it goes in this book of Isaiah. You say, I need more. Okay, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8. Now go, write it before them in a table and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, that's their preachers, see not, and to the prophets, Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits, and so forth and so on. These are those that turn their ears away from hearing the truth and are turned into fables, and so they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. These men, didn't, they wanted to hear smooth things, so they went and found preachers that would preach smooth things instead of the truth of God's word. Other prophets taught the same thing. Do I need to take you to Amos, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, who said that the Lord was going to send a famine for the word of God, and so forth. And Ezekiel saying that if you have an idol in your heart and you come to my prophet, I will deceive my prophet so that my prophet can deceive you. Because you came with an idol in your heart. Because that's what the Jews always had in their hearts, were idols. And stumbling blocks of iniquity before their lives. In Daniel chapter 9, six things were determined upon Israel in 480 years. Six things. One of those six things was to seal up the vision and prophecy 
God would seal it up so that the Jews couldn't understand it and wouldn't know it. But his apostles did, and we do. The apostles came to Jesus and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Matthew 13, 10. What was Jesus' answer? Isaiah 6. John chapter 12. But though he did so many miracles, yet they believed not on him. What is the answer? Isaiah chapter 6. Paul is in Rome in Acts chapter 28. As soon as Paul got to Rome, he called for the leaders of the Jews to meet with him. He sat the leaders of the Jews down and he told them, I am here for the hope of Israel. What is that hope? The resurrection of the dead by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not careful, and if you are not careful to hear me right now and believe what I'm telling you, then Isaiah 6 is going to fall on your heads. Six times in the New Testament. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Have we ever seen this take place in Christian churches in the last 2,000 years? Where did the Church of Rome come from? Where did the Roman Catholics come from? Where did the Mormons come from? Where did the Seventh-day Adventists come from? Where did the Jehovah's Witnesses come from? It's a judgment of God. And if we're not careful with the truth He shows us, it can happen to us. We want to take the first eight verses of Isaiah 6 and get excited for the Lord of glory, and we want a vision of Him, and we want to live by that vision. Then we want to look at the next five verses and believe the doctrine that is there, because it is sober doctrine. But we're on the good side of it. We're on the tenth side of it. (coughs) Isaiah interrupts in verse 11. Then said I, Lord, how long? How long is this going to go on with the Jews being blinded like this? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land, until the nation is overthrown and ruined. Remember, don't talk to me about the Assyrians. Don't talk to me or ask me about the Babylonians, because Jesus and the apostles were way past the Babylonians. And they took this prophecy and applied it to the Jews right then that there was a huge change. Remember the shaking of heaven and earth from Wednesday night? I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And the desire of all nations shall come. Jesus came. The kingdom was taken from the Jews perpetually and given to the Gentiles. Were there some Jews that were allowed to be in that transfer? That's how Paul starts out Romans 11. Hath God cast away his people which he foreknew? I'm one of them. Paul said, I'm one of them. I'm in the tenth. I'm in the seed. I'm in the very small remnant. And so it brings us to verse 11. I mean, verse 13. The verse 13, the last verse. But yet in it. Now notice, we have this people in verses 9 and 10. This people totally blinded so that God wouldn't heal them. Isaiah interrupts and asks, how long is this going to go on? God answers, until, it be o- until they're all overthrown. And like I read in some other places to you, in chapters 8 and 28 and 29 and 30, forever and forever, there is no general recovery of the Jews taught in the Bible. 
That is a presumption of Zionism. That is a presumption of dispensationalism that has to have a Jewish millennium in the future. But the Apostle Paul, when Paul had the Jews as his audience, and he wrote the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, he did not hold out some future kingdom for them or from some general recovery for them. He held out, ye are come to the gospel kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the last kingdom there is. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Yet once, it is a little while, were Haggai's words at the shaking of the New Testament in the time of reformation of the apostles. This is important doctrine. Yet once more, I shake the heavens and the earth. And that was to shake away the Old Testament and to shake away the Jews, bring in the Gentiles, bring in New Testament worship. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved because Haggai said, yet once more, yet once more was the apostles' time of reformation. We're in the final kingdom. There is no Jewish kingdom coming. They're just converted individually. Just, a, just an individual here, an individual there. And Paul ran into them, and we read about them in the book of Acts. And Paul explained in, in, in Romans chapter 11 that he knew there was an elect remnant. And he said, listen, brethren, you Gentiles, God has blinded some of this elect remnant to push us apostles to preach to you Gentiles. But when you, as you Gentiles convert, this, this elect remnant gets a little jealous, and I want to provoke them to jealousy so that they'll convert and join you, and so together we'll all be saved. I hope you read it. I can't preach Romans 11 to you right now. It took me more than one service. Okay, verse 13. Can I make this simple to you? But yet in it shall be a tenth. My wife has heard that 1,000 times this last week. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten. As a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Lord, how long are you going to do this to the Jews? How long are you going to do this to Israel? It sounds like you're breaking all your covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How long? Isaiah is looking at it as this is going to have to end at some point because you've got promises you've got to keep. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Isaiah was only looking at it from a timeline. This has to end sometime because you've got to be good to the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God didn't say when it was going to, when it was going to end. He said, oh, I've always got my people in it all the way along here, and they are counted for the substance of the nation, and I keep my promises through them. You know I'm out of time, so you've got to bear with me right now. In Romans 11, as concerning the gospel... They are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Is that apostrophe in front of the S or after the S? It's after the S because it's not the Father God in heaven's sakes. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's sakes. That there, is still, there was still an elect running down through the nation in the time of the Apostle Paul which is right here. But yet in it shall be a tenth. Remember, 
Verses 9 and 10 are quoted six times in the New Testament. Therefore, we look at these five verses right here with New Testament spectacles on because we are told to by Jesus and the apostles using this passage that way. This verse has caused commentators great grief, especially the words tenth, eaten, and substance. John Calvin and others decided that tenth means ten. And so this verse is about ten kings from Isaiah to Zedekiah. Can anybody here believe that? This is the grief I go through. I do. You say, well, why do you even look at them? Curiosity kills the cat. I mean, unbelievable. How about eating? Matthew Henry decided that eaten is by God eating them. He accepts the holy seed as an edible tithe. Tent. Okay, interesting. Not really. Albert Barnes wants the tenth and return to be the poor, faithless ones that ran down to Egypt out of fear of the Chaldeans. They're described in the book of Jeremiah. Most want to change the word substance to the Hebrew word shalaketh, the king's terrace walk to the temple as they try to explain the purpose of these trees. The trees don't have a purpose except to remind you that there's such a thing as a deciduous tree. These are two deciduous trees. The lime or linden tree is what's called the teal tree here, and the oak. When the oak, when they cast their leaves, do they look alive or dead? They look totally dead. It is simply a metaphor, a similitude, and you don't have to get messed up about it. Just see the similitude of a deciduous tree. When it casts its leaves, it looks like it's dead, but it still has the substance of life buried down inside of it, and so with a change of seasons, out it comes, there's still life there. There's still life there in an deciduous tree, even in winter. Here we go. Ten steps in four minutes. First, divide the verse by its content, grammar, and punctuation into two separate halves. Verse 13 has two separate halves, and the division is after the word eaten. A colon is inferior only to the period to break up thoughts. The first half, but it, yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten. Because that as that comes next is connected with the so down toward the end of the verse. As a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. That's the second half of the verse. Step one, break the verse into its two halves. Second, distinguish it from its tenth in the first clause to match the distinction between substance and thereof in the last clause. The first clause, but yet in it shall be a tenth. How many things are in that first clause? But yet in it shall be a tenth. How many things are in the first clause? Two things, it and the tenth of it. Third, what is it in the first clause? It's this people. Fourth, what is it in the second clause that returns? Not the tenth, but the first it. It returns. But yet in it shall be a tenth. Fifth, how was that nation or this people, as God called them, eaten after their return? 
but yet in it shall be a tenth, and they shall return and be eaten. What does it mean to be eaten? The other nations are going to eat them up because God is past dealing with them. Hezekiah's reforms didn't hold. Josiah's reforms didn't hold. So they had first the Babylonians. Then they had the Seleucid Syrians of Alexander the Great's Greek Empire. Then they had the Romans continually assault, pound, eat, consume, devour the nation. Did we just learn last Sunday in chapter 5 that I will take my vineyard because it hasn't brought me forth sweet grapes and I will break down the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten up? Unbelievable. It's so beautiful. Sister. Oh, yeah, it's you. You better lift your head. Um, three of you young men in this congregation have a very detailed, obsessed mother. I'll leave you all to figure out who I'm referring to. I'm trying to avoid looking at her. She wanted to know about that eating, and it's a very, oh, is it a good question. It messes with people's minds. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and be eaten. There's two things in the first clause, it and the tenth of it. What returns? The whole nation returns. What happens to the whole nation? It continues to be assaulted by Babylonians, by Greeks, and then by Romans. And that's the first half of the verse. So we can read it this way. But yet, in this people, now remember, Isaiah does not understand. He says, Lord, how long? You've got to end this at some point to keep your promise. God doesn't look at a timeline end. God looks at a, I have my elect seed within the nation. That's how, he, that's how he explains it and justifies all of his promises. But yet in this people shall be an elect remnant, described by the tenth, and the nation shall return from captivity, and it shall be persecuted and devoured by its enemies. We only have to wait two Sundays to get over to oh, I hate that Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, look at this. As it's only two Sundays away, the Lord willing. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day, this is after Sennacherib is destroyed. Because Isaiah 10 is about Sennacherib the Assyrian in verse 5. Oh, Assyrian. Verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them. That's the Assyrians who they had gone for to help against Syria and Israel, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return and the consumption decreed the consumption, they're going to be consumed, they're going to be devoured, they're going to be eaten, they're going to be destroyed. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. And so when you read the history, when you read the history of the Jews, when they came back from Babylon, they were persecuted by neighboring nations immediately by, under Ezra and Nehemiah. They were persecuted. And then there was Alexander the Great and his empire that fell into four parts that we read a little bit about on Wednesday evening so that Antiochus IV, known as Epiphanes, came and persecuted them and splattered swine's blood all over the temple of God, put an altar up in there, and then the Romans came. They were devoured as a nation. They were eaten. And so what did it look like? It looked like a tree that had lost all of its leaves. When a tree has lost all of its leaves, it looks dead. 
And so the second half of the verse is saying, take a look at a deciduous tree, folks. Isaiah, look at a deciduous tree. I'm not going to end my blinding to Israel. I just have an elect remnant within it that are considered the substance of all my promises to the nation. So let me quote again from Romans 11:28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's sake. And there's so many more verses. The as-so similitude in the second half of the verse compares deciduous trees to God's view of this people. They look dead, Isaiah, but I have my tenth within them. My eighth point, God counted the elect, holy remnant, as a tenth in the nation for His covenant fulfillment. And the Bible is filled with these promises in Romans 9 and Romans 11, over and over again, just stated repeatedly. The double disjunctive opening, but yet, exalts election against the judgment of verses 9 through 12. But yet, aren't those wonderful words? That is a double disjunctive in Isaiah 6.13. But yet, in it shall be a tenth. In this nation that I'm judging, there's going to be a tenth, and I call them my holy seed, and they are the substance of the nation, just like there is a life principle, and there is life hidden inside a deciduous tree, an oak tree, a linden tree, a lime tree, that it's not the citrus tree at all, not even related. A lime or a linden tree, there is a life, there is life inside it that you can't see, and it stays. And so as the tree goes through its cycles, there's life inside it, which is the substance of a deciduous tree in winter, and it's the substance of my people, and it's the seed of my nation. It's my holy seed. It's if the Lord of Sabaoth had not left us a very small remnant, we had been like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's our interpretive duty to rightly divide between the nation and its elect seed. Paul would say, They are not all Israel which are of Israel, Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Neither because they are the children of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called, even though Abraham had eight sons. This is Isaiah 6.13. If you want to see more, think through more, reason through more, it's been done for you already, and it will be posted soon. Let's think again about Isaiah 6. First eight verses, they should motivate us. They should thrill our souls and motivate us to want to serve this God. Verses 9 through 10 tell us that when we hear truth and we don't live it out in our lives, God can take it away from us, and He is righteous doing so. And He can assault us with trouble like He assaulted His nation over and over May we be motivated by the vision. May we be directed by the doctrine. And may we understand why we're not Zionists, why we're not dispensationalists, and why we don't read the Schofield Bible. Because God's taken His kingdom from that nation and given it to us and miserably destroyed those wicked men that crucified His Son. Were there some Jews saved? Yes. When Paul arrived in Jerusalem... In the 20s of the book of Acts, the apostles said, We know that you've been very successful among the Gentiles, but come here. Do you see how many thousands of Jews believe as well? And so the Lord had a remnant in his nation of Jew, in his Jewish nation, an elect remnant, 
and he had Gentiles that were elect, and together they make up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's no difference between them anymore, and there will be never a difference made between them anymore. The difference is all over. Jews and Gentiles in one body by Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.